I'm Amy Mullins, and you're listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast, 3RRR. This show today was January the 17th, 2017. It was actually uh, my first show as Uncommon Sense. And the people we had on um, were really interesting. Um, And you get to listen to them in just a moment. We had Ben Eltham talking federal politics, uh, Amber Jamison talking about uh, Trump, the inauguration, which is upcoming in a few days, and also um, the signals of what a Trump administration is going Going to look like and what their agenda will be. And uh, then we had a very in-depth uh, and really interesting discussion with Peter Volobin, who is a German author. Uh, he wrote this book that is a bestseller, The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel and How They Communicate, which is published by Black Ink Publishing in Australia. And uh, he joined me from his hometown in Hermel in Germany. And uh, it was a really interesting interesting discussion about his book and it really um, brought out a lot of the um, issues that he he covers in his book and builds upon that and really delves into some of those fascinating areas of science um, that is really just groundbreaking and hopefully will change the way we treat trees and, um, and plan our urban and other landscapes. And uh, also then later on we heard from Elaine Pearson who's the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch Australia. She joined us to talk about the 2017 Human Rights Watch report and uh, in particular Australia and our human rights record at the moment and the various issues that we face as a nation on that front, but also globally um, the issues facing humans and their rights around the world, particularly the threat of populism, which is seen um, to rise not only in the US, but across the world in various countries. So uh, I hope you stay tuned and and listen to what I found was a really interesting um, four interviews. I'm Amy Mullins. I'm currently in the studio with Ben Altham, who is going to speak to us right now about federal politics. And uh, if you thought what could possibly be happening in federal politics in the middle of January with uh, the Christmas period and New Year period, everyone's on holidays apparently, but no, there is so much to talk about in a probably bad way. Uh, so Ben's going to give us all the news and uh, decipher what on earth is happening at the moment. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Yeah, morning, Amy. It's good to be here. Welcome to 2017. Oh, I know. It's a bit scary, isn't it? Uh, yes. Well, the fact that it's another year clicking over is incredibly scary, I must admit. And uh, how was your holiday? Very relaxing, thank you. That's good. So uh, I know that you've been tweeting quite a lot and covering in particular through your journalism for New Matilda this Centrelink uh, robo-debt issue. Um, It really is quite – well, it started out very confusing and there was a lot of misinformation and confusion as to what exactly was happening. Um, What seems to have happened is that uh, the government is trying to recover um, some debt that they think that they're owed from people who've received welfare over the last five years or so. Um, And uh, a lot of them received notices to uh, let or ask if if the uh, income they reported to the ATO is correct in a particular year. 
And uh, what it seems to have done is to have averaged out their yearly income over the the full year. Um, And obviously, a lot of people on welfare, um, you know, they may be having it for only three months and they get a job and and then they start earning. So it's a bit problematic if you average it out over a full 12 months. Uh, You may end up looking like you've earned more when you were receiving welfare. Um, Is that what has been going on? And is that just the tip of the iceberg? Like what really is happening with this issue, Ben? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it certainly is that. Um, many listeners would probably have received some of these letters. We know that more than 169,000 of them have been sent out already. So it's a nationwide dragnet and the government is trying to claw back as much money as it can from welfare recipients, past or present, um, in the you know w- with this debt process now it's um, incredibly crude and um, in many cases simply wrong simply wrong so um, people have been um, issued with debt notices that are, are not right that they've uh, racked up debt the government is claiming in some cases tens of thousands of dollars um, and it's very very distressing for people for obvious reasons uh, if you don't respond to the initial letter if for example you don't get it or Centrelink sends it to the wrong address they pass it straight to a debt collector like Dun and Bradstreet so I spoke to a number of people who've been constantly called harassed by debt collectors um, over the Christmas period you can imagine how distressing that would be um, and yes as we as we looked into it, as uh, myself and other journalists looked into what was going on here, it's very clear that what the government is doing is basically a dragnet. Um, they're matching up data from the ATO to old Centrelink records, and if there's a discrepancy of any kind, uh, then they're just sending people a letter, and no human beings are looking at these letters before they're sent out. Um, and, uh, and we think that as many as 20% or more are simply wrong. So for many people, uh, uh, it's just not the case that they owe the government money. And you have to go to a huge amount of effort to actually prove that there is nothing wrong, that you didn't do anything wrong. It's almost like you're guilty until proven innocent and you need to resupply um, or re-report what your income was in that period, uh, pay cycle by pay cycle, go back through your pay slips if you've still got them. Is yeah, this, absolutely. You are absolutely guilty until innocent in this case. You are asked to provide extra information to Centrelink to prove why you shouldn't have to pay back this debt. Now, in uh, the big issue, as you mentioned, is the fact that what they're doing is matching ATO tax records to your old Centrelink data. So, yeah, you might have been on Newstart for three months back in 2011 and then got a job, and in that year you would have earned money. Now, um, if they then look at how much money you earned in 2011, all they're doing then is dividing that number by 26 to work out whether you should have got Centrelink benefits. Now, of course, that's completely wrong. You might not have earned any money for three weeks and then got a good paying job. So, um, um, there's no capacity for the Centrelink systems to understand that because it's just a really dumb database. And for people to try and get in touch with Centrelink to adjust these details is a nightmare. Uh, I, I think there's no other way to say it. Centrelink's in crisis. Uh, there's been more than 5,000 people, frontline staff, sacked from Centrelink um, under the coalition. They simply don't have the, the human power, the personnel to handle this stuff. Um, anyone who's ever tried to phone into Centrelink knows what an absolute nightmare that is. Literally hours people can be on the phone trying to get through. Uh, Centrelink offices we know um, have queues 10 deep um, and increasingly a lot of aggression and even violence in Centrelink offices. So um, this is a really, really serious issue and the government is in denial about how serious it is. 
And it's shocking, really, that it, this has been going on, for, as you say, in at the end of 2016 and uh, even earlier. I think it was around maybe October people start receiving these notices. Um, how has it been going on for so long with such heightened scrutiny in the media um, and that Alan Tudge, who the, the Minister for Human Services, has actually, he came out last week and said it's working well and that's exactly how it's supposed to work. How has the government maintained this? level of um you know la-di-da everything's fine here don't you know don't look at this it's, it's all good pretty interesting response from the government so alan tudge the responsible minister was on holidays for three weeks right through the worst period of this uh, when he came back from holidays uh, he immediately just announced that there was nothing to see here everything's fine yes the the quote i think he gave the abc was the system is working <laughs> so um and from the government's point of view, I might add, I think they do think the system is working because I think it's fair to say they don't care about individuals caught up in the, the giant bureaucracy of Centrelink. Um, all they care about is getting money back off Australia's most vulnerable citizens uh, for the budget bottom line. And so from their point of view, the fact that the government is clawing back all of these dubious welfare debts is, um, is pretty great. Yeah, and that is really concerning because people are actually paying these debts even if they think it's wrong. So there are some people who aren't disputing it and are so concerned that they start paying it or begin a, a payment plan at least. Um, is there any signal towards making any changes to this system? No, not so far. Um, Alan Tudge just said he'll make a few incredibly minor changes like putting the 1800 number on the letters from now on, which I'm sure mm. will really reassure people who receive these letters. Um, it's an incredibly big dragnet. Um, they've only just begun. Uh, the government plans to send out 1.7 million of these letters over the next year or so. So it's going to touch really a broad population in Australia, probably nearly everyone that's ever been on welfare, essentially. So it's a massive, massive dragnet and I think unconscionable on any level. Um, and by the way, if you've been caught up in this Centrelink uh, dragnet, you can. there are some things you can do. The first thing you can do is if you do get to, in contact with Centrelink, you can ask for your case to be looked at by an authorised review officer. Okay, that's very important. So that gets a human being to look at your case. The next thing you should do is contact a community legal centre or a welfare rights organisation. Um, get yourself in the queue represented by those guys because there's clearly going to be a class action mounted either in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal or probably eventually in the federal court because uh, on certain interpretations, what's going on here is actually illegal. It absolutely um, is concerning and certainly it'll be interesting to look at um, what happens legally in this regard because it does seem quite unprecedented, the, the scale, but also this automated system, this level of inhuman response that we've got here. Um, you know, it, it really does concern me that we are seeing the decline of the public service really in many regards, but then we're also seeing this kind of veneration of technology and data um, that's going to solve all of our problems and, uh, you know, bring the budget back into balance. Uh, we're really not use, looking at policy with a human lens, um, you know, that Australia is, is full of citizens and real people with uh, you know, emotions and they also really generally have good intentions and are very fair 
there. And if we ever um, look at statistics that show how many people actually, um, you know, are lying or not reporting their income uh, correctly, it's very, very few. It's quite minor, um, as ACOS would tell you. So how is, what does this kind of signal more broadly, Ben, moving forward and how this government is approaching um, people on welfare or our most vulnerable? Well, I mean, I think it shows the government's uh, ideology, really. When it comes to welfare, the government thinks welfare is a bad thing in and of itself. The fact that the government is going to pay you money of any kind for any reason, I think the government is opposed to that idea. And if you look at what Christian Porter, the social services minister, has been saying over the last year, as well as Alan Tudge, they've been incredibly strident in their anti-welfare rhetoric, even going as far as to say that really we're being too generous in Australia, that we should have less welfare. And I think underlying that is an ideology that if you're on welfare, it's your fault that you're somehow uh, lacking as a citizen or a human being, that you haven't really done enough hard work for yourself, you don't have enough get up and go. It's a failure of character, I think, for some of these char- some of these government ministers. That's their view. And let's look at some of these government ministers. Um, Christian Porter's a good example. He's a third-generation politician. His father was a minister in the Liberal government in Western Australia. His grandfather was an MP in Joe Bjorki-Peterson's government in Queensland. So uh, we're starting to see the emergence here of what you could have to say is class warfare, really. Mm. <laughs> warfare of the upper classes against the lower classes. And I think it's uh, it's all too ironic that in the, the month that this Centrelink debacle blew up is the same time that we're discovering that all sorts of government ministers and parliamentarians are misusing their parliamentary mm. travel entitlements. Um, and, you know, and so there's no, there's a very, very different set of rules applied to the power elites than are applied to <laughs> the poor guy at Centrelink. Absolutely. And that is a perfect segue into what was really highlighted as a very um, interesting contrast. Uh, Susan Lee, who uh, was the Minister for Health uh, and Sport, she's no longer, she's resigned. Um, And as you say, we've had a huge flare up in this issue of entitlements. uh, And Susan Lee, that was her uh, downfall. But I think even more so, it was so poignant and she had to really resign so quickly, um, you know, because of this other Centrelink thing and that it really did um, smack of hypocrisy um, that she was out there going to the Gold Coast and buying apartments at the same time um, as doing ministerial business, Um, you know, whether that be... um, you know, the case or not, and I'm sure it was, um, but it doesn't really seem to be fair or to, as people say, pass the pub test. Um, Ben, what... Well, I don't think it was the case, Amy. I don't think you can look at Susan Lee's conduct and justify it as ministerial business on any level. I Mm. mean, buying an apartment, I'm sorry, that's not your job as the minister. Your job as the minister is to uh, enact policy and to look after Australia's pretty troubled health system. Mm. So I would have thought um, attending attending fundraisers with Serena Russo, a well-known Liberal Party donor, that's not ministerial business. That's not even, in my opinion, parliamentary business. Mm. That's now, um, MP business, I think. It's more of a, I'm a politician looking to garner support. And, uh, and certainly that is something you could potentially claim back on your own professional, um, you know, expenses for your own personal tax, potentially. Um, but 
I see what you mean there. I mean, it isn't ministerial business. Um, I know that I could understand how someone could explain it away uh, in their mind and to think that it's okay because, you know, she was doing something else. But certainly if you are one of our highest office bearers and, uh, I mean, even if you're just, you know, Joe um, off in his office, he's not going to duck out in the afternoon to go buy an apartment during work hours. (laughs) Um, So if you you use that... uh, Com- comparison, then I can say that no, it doesn't really pass it. Um, so yeah, it, it really is a tough one. But this kind of does bring us to the point of the rules are very vague and they're not um, particularly transparent and they, they're not reported very quickly either. So, um, you know, the media can't jump on this and neither can, uh, you know, interested people of the public actually check uh, what ministers and other politicians are claiming. Ben, what what is the real issue here? And, you know, the suggested reforms that they've got, um, you know, which I think came out in response to Bronwyn Bishop's, uh, you know, interesting yes, they did. Yes. experience with helicopters. Um, you know, what exactly is this, uh, what are these reforms and is it going to actually do anything? Well, I don't think they are actually. I, I think the reforms don't go far enough. Um, so the current system, you're right to point out, it's very complex, it's opaque, it's hard for politicians to understand, let alone the general public. Um, it's a sort of patchwork quilt of rules that's developed over many, many years. Um, that's no excuse for not reforming them, is it, really? I mean, that, that shows you just how badly in need of reform the rules are. Um, Susan Lee's initial response when asked about these trips to the Gold Coast, I think she made more than 34 um, over the last few years, um, was to say, well, it's within the rules. I was doing some ministerial business. Now, that shows you just how sort of slack the rules are because basically that's all you need to do as a politician. You simply say to the Department of Finance, yeah, yeah, I I was on parliamentary business. I, I met with a constituent or I met with a donor or whatever. I did some meetings. That's all you need to do to claim back your travel. Um, now, when people ask Susan Lee, okay, well, what was the meeting you were doing on the Gold Coast? You know, that's when it all started to unravel for her. And I think many other politicians are now being caught up in the media scrutiny as people are looking at their very extravagant claims. Um, that some of the things that you're allowed to do, I think, wouldn't pass the pub test. But they also, I don't think, um, on any sensible level, truly represent what parliamentarians need to do to do their jobs. So, for example, the family travel, I think, is coming under a lot of scrutiny. You're allowed to um, to take your family travelling on official business with you. Now, we know that politics is hard on families, but what other job in Australia do you get free flights for your whole family to go off and do quasi-official business? You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't happen in the rest of the economy. And we're talking about people who are some of the highest paid people in the country. You know, if you're a cabinet minister in Australia, you're on $430,000. You are literally the top 1%. You know, and I think that's what this whole scandal has really uncovered is that it's almost like we, we're seeing inside what the political class looks like. And from the inside, it's pretty cushy. There's a lot of perks. There are. There are quite a lot of perks. And funnily enough, uh, Anthony Albanese is pretty uh, on his entitlements and declaring gifts. I saw that he sent out a letter to make sure people knew he got a Monopoly board game from the caravanners. So uh, (laughs) there are some people who are a little bit more conscientious and uh, to the letter than others. Albo probably loves that kind of stuff. But, you know, like, so the reforms that have been proposed... um, 
or they, they, they're not nearly going far enough in my opinion. So they will pare back some of these travel entitlements. Um, Malcolm Turnbull's talking about having some kind of independent body that would oversee these entitlements. I think that's a really good idea. Uh, but it, they're still talking about leaving it up to the politicians themselves to certify whether their travel was on official business or not. And I think that that's not good enough. You know, we've seen over the last week that that's clearly not good enough, that politicians, if left to their own devices, can't be trusted with taxpayers' money. Well, and isn't it interesting? Um, the Ministry of Finance does have some level of oversight, but I think is it only when they're asked to review something or do they actively review things? No, they don't. They don't actively review things. Mm. They only look at something when it's been referred to them, like, for example, Bromham Bishop's ill-fated helicopter charter. Um, you know... It, in most other places of work, uh, if you want to go travelling on a work sort of thing, you have to beg pretty hard the powers that be to pay for your airfare. Uh, it's not the case in this in this example. Uh, the politicians simply rack it up and then they charge it to the taxpayer. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think, Ben, would be the key reform you would implement? Uh, a much stronger definition of what is official business. You know, let's have some rules around what official business is and is not. Let's rule out some things that are not official business. I would say meeting with party donors, meeting with fundraisers. That's not ministerial or parliamentary business. If that's what it takes to get yourself elected, fair enough, do it on your own time. Um, similarly, alcohol or extravagant meals. I don't see why taking your whole staff to a very expensive restaurant should have to be on the taxpayer's dime. Um, let's talk about where they're travelling to and from. You know, if they're going to a single meeting in a fairly salubrious location it seems to it starts to look as though you've had that meeting simply so that you could go to Uluru or you could go up to Cairns to have a holiday um, let's let's start to publish the details of what's in these meetings that they have you know let's have the minutes what was discussed you know if this is an official meeting then the public have a right to know what you were doing in that meeting Mm. And this does bring us to open government. And uh, and interestingly, I, uh, when Tony Abbott came in as Prime Minister, I wrote a piece on the open government partnership, which, although it is a bit of a talk fest, it does actually require countries to put together a plan and implement it uh, to have an open government. And Australia was extremely reluctant to join and only recently uh, engaged in any consultation about joining and potentially having an action plan to be open. So we have a long way to go and that does bring me to Tony Abbott who is still around uh, writing op-eds and sharing his wisdom and uh, views with us on many topics and in particular over the weekend he was in the Australian uh, sat talking really directly to the Turnbull government of which he is a member um, certainly a, a backbencher not a not a member of cabinet but uh, he was talking about bring, pulling back the renewable energy target um, among other things and uh, talking about a range of economic issues uh, relating to renewable energy and presumably suggesting that renewable energy is not a uh, particularly smart economic move. What do you think of this, uh, Ben? Tony Abbott keeps rearing his head every week or so. Um, do you think this is going to finish anytime soon? Well, what I think, Amy, is this is why I don't read The Australian. Um, <laughs> but but it's good. It's interesting. It's good fun. It's a nice read. 
Look, I think um, Tony Abbott's not going away for obvious reasons because he thinks he could be Prime Minister again one day. And so um, he's going to continue to undermine Malcolm Turnbull at every opportunity. And with the Turnbull government stumbling as badly as it is, then there's every reason for, for Abbott to keep white-anting from the backbench. I mean, the, the, renewable en- the renewable energy thing, I think, is hilarious. Um, For those of us who have long enough memories, Tony Abbott actually promised to keep the renewable energy target in 2013, going into the 2013 federal election. He promised many things going into that election, didn't he? He promised quite a few things going into that election. Mm. So I guess um, this is nothing if not consistent. Um, I mean, the other thing to say about that is it's simply wrong. It's actually just 100% factually incorrect. Renewable energy is not responsible for electricity prices going up. Um, It's the network gold plating that has caused that and also the very high price for gas. And why is the gas price going up? It's because Australia is selling all our gas on the international market. So, you know, I think it's very frustrating for me as a political observer looking at this continual scare campaign about renewable energy because it's fake news, actually. Let's use that little phrase that we like to use. It's simply wrong. Yep. Couldn't agree more, Ben. Uh, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with us about federal politics. It's okay, Amy. Congratulations on the show. I'm really looking forward to this year. Thank you. I'm so glad to be having you in as a regular and talking about federal politics because it's always been a great time when I've come in to talk to you. Um, but yeah, it's fun now to get to interview you and get your thoughts and insights as well. So thanks very much, Ben. Yes, mate, it's going to be a very fascinating year ahead. And, uh, yeah, you're listening to 3RRR and uh, this show, Uncommon Sense. And as mentioned, we'll be chatting right now, actually, with Amber Jamison, who's a reporter at The Guardian US. And uh, she is dialing in from New York City and she's here to chat with us about, oh, well, there's so many things, um, but uh, post-US election, what is happening uh, with the incoming Trump administration. Uh, We're just days away from Trump's inauguration, which is on the 20th of January. Uh, So Amber will be sharing her insights and uh, expertise from the ground. Hi, Amber. How's it going? I'm good. How are you going? Great. Thank you. And thanks so much for joining us. Oh, anytime. It's always a pleasure. And also, on um, it's Martin Luther King Day here in the US, so it's oh. an important day to talk politics. A very important day. And uh, is, is there anything in particular that people do for Martin Luther King Day? Um, the main thing seems to be that people post MLK quotes on Facebook. Um, but there are parades and so forth um, sort of in different cities. But, um, you know, in fact, we have had Donald Trump, of course, tweeting today about Martin Luther King. But it's often one that people use more as a um, sort of celebration of, of civil rights and and looking forward to politics, which just seems so incredibly appropriate, um, particularly with the last week and the discussions with the civil rights um, veteran John Lewis and Donald Trump. Right. And uh, we just saw, obviously, um, President Obama, he uh, gave his concluding speech or outgoing speech, and uh, that was certainly a fairly um, upbeat speech and was looking to the future and also did signal towards um, the struggle ahead and that he as a a citizen would be uh, looking to um, advocate as he has done as president on these issues. Um, But what exactly has been going on since the US election? 
reaction in the lead up to Trump um, and his inauguration because we've had a bit of a break here in Australia and uh, I myself have had a decent amount of time looking at this over Twitter but uh, some people may have actually had a holiday and have not been following it closely so um, just could you give us a little bit of an insight into what's been happening since Trump was elected and and the mechanisms um, that are moving at the moment to bring him towards um, the White House? Sure, and how jealous I am of everybody who has got to have a break um, from this madness, because as you're right, it has not ended at all since the election. In fact, things have gotten um, even more wild, really. Um, You've got, as you mentioned on Friday, is the um, inauguration of Donald Trump. You've actually at the moment 26 members of Congress who will be boycotting Trump's inauguration um, because of the connections that um, are being alleged alleged between President-elect Trump's team and Russia. Um, And so you're seeing a a lot of of battle happening with politicians about how they are going to deal with the next administration, just as you mentioned there that President Obama has been calling on people to to be politically active and get engaged with democracy. There are also a bunch of um, politicians who are uh, very actively uh, against uh, Donald Trump. Uh, We have had, it came out, I think it was a week and a bit ago now, now it's become a total blur, um, which was that then CNN reported that there was this... uh, report going around, a 35-page report um, outlining um, Donald Trump and connections with Russia, including some very salacious sexual rumours, which I won't go into right now. It is unverified. Um, it did, uh, BuzzFeed did publish the report, um, and then it became this whole sort of incredible bonanza in, in politics of exactly how much uh, of a connection between Russia and uh, Donald Trump's team there is and how much of a connection there was in the hacking of the DNC, the Democratic National Convention emails that came out during the election. Um, so that sort of hung over a lot of what's happened the last few weeks. That that came out the day before um, Donald Trump's first um, press conference as uh, president-elect. He hadn't had one for several months. I think it was about six months. Um, and it also has hung over the the confirmation hearings that have been happening, which is when basically Senate committees hear for each of the nominees that Donald Trump has for um, his cabinet. Because it's not like in Australia where, you know, it's, it's the members of the you know, elected representatives that then become, you know, finance minister, etc. Here it's sort of specific people who are chosen for these positions and not necessarily... Um, elected officials and so they've been appearing uh in you know you've had rex tillerson who's the head of exxon mobile for um secretary of state um you've got senator jeff sessions who's a possible um attorney general um ben carsons who was the surgeon who was um big in the uh as a nominee in the a republican nominee in the election as the housing um head of housing so you're sort of seeing these these Senate commissions happen at the same time that there's a scandal about Russia and, and you know, just swelling protests about the incoming um, administration. And uh, what you're mentioning there is that there's just a whole load of guys in this um, administration and, and not politicians either, really. Um, how many women does Trump intend to include in his inner circle? <laughs> Uh, there is not many women. There is a couple. There's a handful. Um, Betsy Duvos is the uh, secretary, um, and there is there's a couple, but there is very very few. It is very male dominated, um, and it's also incredibly Wall Street dominated. So as much as well, you know, Donald Trump talked a lot about draining the swamp, which was sort of getting out, um, you know, all the the scum of DC. Um, but it's just essentially replaced the power. Um, 
the big classic traditional Washington DC power with Wall Street power. So it's not as if these are, you know, um, civil servants who've spent a long time working in policy. Um, a lot of times these have been, um, you know, heads of major corporations or in the case of Ben Carson's, um, someone who was a a surgeon, a brain surgeon, and now poss- is now supposed to be head of um, housing development. So just people who are covering areas that they have had nothing really to do with previously. So it's a pretty sort of shocking and amazing time. And a lot of these hearings are all happening at the exact same time. So it's sort of very hard. There's sort of, at the moment, it sort of feels like during the election, there were so many scandals coming out during the election that there was multiple scandals every day and you sort of couldn't follow any particular one. Um, And now it seems like a similar thing um, in this new administration where there's just so many sort of amazing things that are being said every single day in different sort of parts uh, that it's very hard to follow any of them in any um, for any you know length of time. And uh, presumably that's a positive um, for them because they're avoiding a great deal of media scrutiny and it's much harder for the media to keep on top of this and, and choose what is the most newsworthy, um, you know, latest development and, and also what's the most significant in the long term. And uh, and you mentioned there Rex Tillerson, who um, may be the next Secretary of State. Um, I know that what he came out with about the South China Sea, um, which was quite um, an aggressive stance uh, for America was pretty controversial when it happened. Is that um, a concern over there for people in America? Actually, I think when it comes to records and stuff, there has been much more um, coverage about uh, when Marco Rubio, who had run as a Republican nominee, was questioning Rex Tillerson about um, connections with Putin. At the moment, the thing that is dominating the US media here is Russia. Like, Americans are obsessed with what is happening with the Russia connection. And Rubio questioned Tillerson very hard on, on um, you know, the relationships between, you know, essentially Putin and what was happening in Aleppo with Syria and what did he think um, should be, what should be taken against it, whether there should be sanctions, whether, um, you know, Vladimir Putin should be regarded as, um, you know, some sort of war criminal. And the fact that Tillerson did not stand up at all against Russia has sort of been the seen as the overwhelming um, concern here in the US when it comes to Tillerson and possible and as a possible Secretary of State. Right, and I mean it does bring back those issues around uh, the Cold War that uh, you know are legacy issues and paranoia around Russia. Um, I recall just recently that uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee said that they would, uh, which is actually made up of Republicans and Democrats, uh, are keen and um, pressing ahead with an inquiry into these links between um, Trump and Russia. Do you think that's uh, at the fore at the moment? Yeah, that's so that is going on at the moment. The FBI is refusing to say whether they're investigating, which is sort of an odd thing because the FBI was quite happy to talk about um, their investigation to Hillary Clinton's emails during the campaign. That, in fact, by many people, including the Clinton campaign, is often regarded as what ticked the campaign to Trump in the final weeks when they came out and said that they are still investigating um, further emails that were coming out um, due to another case involving Anthony Weiner. But it's sort of quite fascinating because there has been a lot of pressure on the FBI to discuss 
uh, what their investigations are happening between Russia and Trump, and that's not being said publicly, but the Senate Intelligence Committee and very prominent Republicans, including John McCain, who people might remember from um, 2008 as the nominee at the time against Obama, uh, he has spoken out with deep concern about it. So you do have a lot. I mean... Being anti-Russia is actually a very traditional um, Republican concern here in the US. That hasn't really been that typically been something that the Democrats have been very focused on. That's always been Republican. So it's incredibly fascinating to now see that it is the Republicans who are being more lenient and um, more dismissive of connections between Russia and, and the Trump administration. Yeah, it is really fascinating and it'll be fascinating to watch the development and what actually comes to light and hopefully some of the investigative journalism um, that still lives in America um, can uh, look into that. And I know The Guardian US is a great um, media piece and it's it's excellent that they've got oversight as well as CNN and The Washington Post and those kinds. Um, and just on the Trump inauguration, I know that uh, this has been a bit of a, an issue is um, getting anyone to turn up, more specifically musicians to play at Trump's inauguration? It's hilarious actually trying to watch this um, go down, which is that so they've just, they announced last week that he'd finally had some uh, stars, stars sort of, um, you know, a little bit. Commas. Question mark. Yes, no, not, not really stars. So one is Toby Keith, who was a country singer. Another is Three Doors Down. They had the hit song Kryptonite. Um, Jennifer Holiday, who was in the original Dreamgirls cast on Broadway, uh, was announced as a singer and then actually backed out the next day um, after people in the media had pointed out, you know, she was a very strong icon in the in the gay community and that essentially her performing is is a support of the Trump administration and some of their anti-gay rights um you know, things that they say, and so she actually backed out. So there, it's a very, it's Trump keeps sort of tweeting, you know, he's tweeted just um, a couple of days ago, like, inauguration day is turning out to be even bigger than expected, and in terms of star power, it's not happening. There's actually, the day after the inauguration is the Women's March, when they're expecting 200,000 women, mainly women, um, to march on DC, uh, and in terms of buses that have been a bus parking, that's sort of you have to get uh, you know a permits to be allowed to park as a, as a bus coming into DC. Um, on the day of the inauguration, there's been 200 permits issued. The day after the inauguration, there's 1,200 permits issued. So there are sort of thousands of people coming to DC for the inauguration, but they're actually coming a lot of them for the day after for these huge protests. So it's. It's a very different affair from when Obama had Beyonce and Aretha Franklin um, perform in in his inauguration. That is um, quite a contrast indeed. And uh, I'm not sure if it's, what do we call it, fake news or satire, but did is, is a Bruce Springsteen cover band actually playing or is that made up? So the Bruce Springsteen cover band is playing at... So in, on, on inauguration night, there are these balls. Actually, the whole week, there are these balls that are held all over. So you always, talk, you always hear about the inauguration ball. There's actually multiple balls. Uh, and state societies put on a bunch of balls. So there'll be the, the Texas ball and the, you know, the New Jersey ball. And the um, Bruce Springsteen cover band is to play at the New Jersey inauguration ball. So it's not technically the major inauguration ball and not one that Trump is likely to be attending. Um, but yes, Bruce Springsteen, who was uh, a big Hillary Clinton supporter and played um, 
for Hillary Clinton in fundraisers. Uh, it's sort of this ironic thing that, you know, you've got a, a tribute band playing uh, at the Trump inauguration. Yeah, and not a lot he can do about it, I presume. Um, and, uh, no, sadly. Exactly. And just finally, um, Amber, looking towards the future and uh, what's likely to happen um, post-inauguration and also, um, you know, how these nominations proceed, what do you think the first things are that the Trump administration will be taking action on and do they have a kind of agenda it's funny that you say looking past the inauguration because my immediate thought was, oh, that's right, we have to do this all again next week. It still keeps going. Um, but, yes, so basically the thing that is really dominating a lot at the moment is um, the repealing of the Affordable Care Act, often known as Obamacare. Um, this is what is how millions, I think about 20 million Americans, have health care under this um, health care system. Uh, and the Republicans have been promising to repeal it. And it's one of the first things on the agenda. It's already happening. There's already been a Senate vote. Congress is already moving on it. So the thing, in terms of policy-wise, that we will first be seeing will be um, attempts to get rid of and, and destroy the Affordable Care Act and also part of that being defunding um, Planned Parenthood as well. So that's kind of the first on the table. There's also a, a, a bunch of other things. Part of the thing with the Trump, President Trump is that uh, a lot of his policies were never incredibly developed and were pretty unknown during the election. Um, so there will be just a bit of a question mark on what happens next. No one's entirely sure of exactly um, what is going to happen when, but I think the the repealing of Obamacare, and there is currently no plan with what to replace it with. It's just repealing it and then leaving people um, without health care is the current plan. So that is the, the sort of first part of the Trump administration. Well, it's going to be really interesting to watch and obviously uh, quite depressing and for you, very real. Um, but thank you so much, Amber, for joining us and uh, sharing what's going on over there. It's pretty hard from Australia to really decipher what the key issues are. You just see a huge flurry of activity every time uh, you get a Trump tweet and um, you know a new development from the committee hearings. So your insights are much valued. It's hard to figure it out from, from being here in the middle of it, so I can totally understand the Australia distance. And you're listening to 3RRR. I'm Amy Mullins, and up now we are speaking to Peter Volleben. He is a, a, a forester in Germany, and he's also a conservationist, um, and he's written a book called The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel and How They Communicate. And uh, it is an absolutely fascinating read. Uh, it's published in Australia by Black Ink Publishing, and uh, we are just delighted to have Peter with us right now via Skype from his hometown in Hermel. Thank you very much, Peter, for joining us. Hi, Amy. I'm glad to be on your show. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so first up, uh, this book is fascinating because it talks about trees um, as if they have their own life that, that is quite hidden. It's not really very visible to the average person. Um, and I wonder when you were first working with trees um, in your role at uh, the Forestry Commission in Germany, whether you really did um, notice this hidden life or when it actually came to you or you first noticed um, that they that there was something more going on uh, beneath the surface and under the ground? 
Yeah, um, when I started um, as a forester, I yeah I, I knew as much about the the life hidden life of trees as a butcher knows about animal feelings because a forester is yeah is, is a timber producer and as, as such a forester I used to look at trees um, yeah just um, um, in terms of their quality um, that means. Um, a tree is a good tree when you can make straight planks out of it, and it's a bad tree when it's bended and when there are many branches on it. And yeah, just look at trees like like on raw material. And uh, um, then we, uh, as, as a little child, I always wanted to be a uh, yeah something like a con con uh, conservationist. Oh, sorry, I don't know the word in, in English exactly, but uh, some someone who wants to protect nature. Since I was a little child, and I, then I realized as a forester that I'm going to destroy forests. And um, then I traveled around and looked at some other forest districts, and I saw that uh, there are people, forest owners, uh, who manage their forests much more environmental friendly and um, without heavy machineries, without clear cuts, um, keeping the, the family bands of trees, and there are family bands of trees, uh, together, live together, and uh, those forests um, are um, much healthier. And, um, and what's amazing, they they uh, the people earn much more money with it. And then we thought here in our little village, wow, that should be the way we we should go in the future. And then uh, when we changed methods, then I discovered all those amazing things because I I I, I get a new look on trees. Yeah, and um, you in your book make this distinction between uh, the forests that have this ancient growth, so trees that have 4,000 years of life um, behind them, and then these other kind of forests which are more prevalent throughout Europe, which are newer forests and their plantations. Um, can you describe to us the difference um, between those and, and the forests that you're working with? Yeah, and um, in a common forest in Germany, um, yeah, that, that are no real forests, that are plantations. And um, in those plantations, uh, trees grow very fast and they grow without their their parents and um, they, they have been planted. And when you plant trees, you uh, cut the roots to have com uh, compact uh, roots because that is much easier to plant. And then you cut the brain-like structures at the root tips. And what will happen to us when we would cut someone's brain-like structures, we all know. And for trees, that's also a very heavy damage because trees are able to discover whether their neighbors are a different species or their own species. If there's this are family members or even a mother tree is able to discover whether seedlings are its own children. And, um, and then the mother tree will connect them and uh, feed them via root connections with sugar solution. Uh, you may even say they suckle their children. And um, in a primary forest, um, little tree will yeah will have a youth about uh, three, two or three centuries before it is allowed to grow faster. And um, that means a tree which which have uh, has a very long lasting childhood can become very old. And nowadays in our plantations, trees are forced to grow very fast because so they are ready to the market after, let's say, 60 or 70 years. And that means that the trees are, after that period, very exhausted. And even if you would um, left, leave them in the forest, in a, let's say, in a, in, the, in a conservation area, 
then they couldn't become uh, very old because yeah they are exhausted and it's it's we can compare that with the industrial keeping of animals of pigs for example yeah absolutely and um and you mentioned about this whole concept of um baby trees or young trees growing up and um, the need to be strict with them and particularly in a forest setting where it is very enclosed and they're planted or they've grown very closely together that they um, need this kind of strict upbringing to be able to actually uh, grow slowly in the beginning and understand um, you know the behaviors that are necessary for survival so only taking as much water as is needed and not receiving as much sunlight um, so that they don't grow as fast um could you please you know share a bit more about um that that process um of the young trees growing up and the behaviors that they learn in order to um survive and grow older in the future yeah um they um uh, an old mother tree um uh, gives uh, a deep shade um to the little ones so that only three percent of the sunlight reaches the ground or the little ones and that's not enough to live and not enough to die to make photosynthesis, to produce sugar. And therefore, those little ones uh, are suckled by their mother trees via the root connections. And um, the, um, yeah, after um, two or three centuries, when the mother trees die, then there's a light spot for the little ones. And then they can grow uh, up in, yeah, in, say, in, in groups like a kindergarten. And when we have their trees, which are not growing straight up, uh, which are bending on left or right like like a clown, in, like a class clown um, in, in, uh, in, a, in a school class, um, then uh, this this clown will be, uh, will, uh, the other trees grow faster because they grow uh, straight. And then those this clown will be left behind and uh, will even lose those 3% of the sunlight and will die. And after... Uh, long periods, we just have uh, straight young trees there, and they are uh, they can uh, stand better storms, for example, because uh, the wood is constructed perfectly so that there won't be any cracks inside. Those trees uh, can become very old, and um, they are connected uh, through the the whole ground via the roots and via a fungi network. And um, they they get support when they when they when they will become sick and uh, vice versa when they are very healthy and the neighbor tree is sick then they support the neighbor tree so that the whole community can become very old and very stable. And that's really interesting um, part or idea that you pick up in your book and it's it's displayed throughout in all of these um, scientific findings that it's really about um, a community and that's how that they survive and that they grow and um, and are I guess successful if you want to put it in a capitalistic term but if we're looking yeah. at um, you know this idea of community why is it so important to trees you're mentioning um, you know the root system and that there's a great deal of interconnection through the roots but there's also even greater, um, more extended connections through the fungi that grows and attaches itself to the roots. Um, in this concept of community, how do the trees support each other and do they distinguish between one another um, in terms of their species? Yeah, um, uh, trees support um, each other without any condition, but uh, just within the same species. Um, uh, different uh, tree species are 
as far genetically seen as far away as, as we and goldfish, for example. Um, so that's no racism among trees when, for example, uh, beech trees and uh, oak trees are harassing um, each other. Um, that's that's just uh, very far uh, uh, foreign species. But within a species, trees are very social because a, tr a single tree knows instinctively that it is not a forest. And just as a forest, uh, it's possible uh, uh, to survive uh, to survive and go into the future for trees because, for example, together they they can cool down. In in my forest district, there's research being done that. In summertime, uh, in, in primeval forest is able to cool down uh, in average of uh, three degrees uh, in comparison to managed forest. So um, the climate change is for an intact forest no problem. The air is humid; it is cool. That's exactly what trees love. And um, yeah, when when a tree would compete against other trees, then uh, they they would be like lone wolves, and uh, they would stand alone. And we can see that in parks or in cities or in managed forest areas that those trees won't become older as some centuries and that's nothing for a tree. Absolutely. And and you're just picking up here on this idea of a lone wolf or as you call them, um, street kids of the forest, those trees that are in urban environments or are just separate um, and not together with their own species. Um, in terms of the street kids or these loners, um, we, you know, in Australia have uh, many different species of trees, which would be quite different from Germany in some regard. Um, but, you know, in Melbourne, for example, where Triple R is based, uh, we have many trees in the middle of a street um, on the side of a, a nature strip in front of houses, but they are fairly separate um, and there aren't that many bunched together. How do these trees um, survive when they are alone? And are they at a disadvantage um, if they're not planted together? Yeah, um, and that um, it, it doesn't matter whether the, the trees are in Australia or in Germany. Uh, that are different species. You are right, but the the system is exactly the same. So um, trees. It doesn't matter whether it is eucalyptus or the beech trees here in Hümmel. They are used to live in family bands. And when you plant uh, trees um, along streets. Then they are alone. Uh, then they are on their own. For example, when they grew, they grow up without a mother tree. That means that they can grow very fast because they get as much light as they want. And uh, we always think that a fast grow growth um, is healthy, but it's just vice versa. Those trees get exhausted, and yeah, they they will die perhaps after two or three hundred years. And we think, wow, that's a long period, but that's nothing for a tree. And um, they suffer also because uh, the soil in the streets, uh, streets is compressed and uh, it uh, can't store very much water. Uh, the roots uh, are disabled because um, during the, the act of plantation, they um, had been cut so that the, the root tips are cut off so that they are, are not able to connect uh, even if a tree is um, uh, in the neighborhood. And um, a tree is also it's also a disadvantage when it's uh, standing near a street light because trees have to sleep at night. That's a very new research being done from uh, universities universities of uh, Finland and Austria that trees really uh, change their silhouette at night. Um, the branches will come down a little bit even though the pressure of water uh, rise at night. 
So we don't know what, what trees are doing when they are sleeping. <laughs> we can the research is uh, really at the at the beginning and the moment. But we know that trees are sleeping uh, at night, and when the street light is burning the whole night, um, then the tree um, will die much earlier. That is fascinating. <laughs> Do you think that <laughs> we're going to be changing any of our practices around um, trees in urban environments anytime soon? Have you seen any any change in attitude towards trees in the city and um, and those that are planted alone? Um, do you mean in, in what what um, the the gardeners uh, the city gardeners yeah. are doing for the future? If if they change it to a more friendly way of of uh, treating trees? Yeah, absolutely. Are there yes. you know are cities changing their practices? No, no, not at the moment. We in it's uh, in, um, in Germany. Um, it's when when a tree is planted in a city, um, they plant as as big as possible because. Uh, we don't have time, um, and we don't have time. We would, we like to have big trees. We like to have the whole street ready for use, and that means the bigger the, the, the tree you plant, the harder it is for for the tree to root. Um, and uh, there, I I don't see any any change. But it would be so easy to have a change. For example, when you have an, an old park in the city, then and and you have, for example, oak trees or whatsoever. Then you can uh, put some seeds in in the soil, and well, yeah, and then you have uh, soon you have a little family there. Um, that sounds strange, and that sounds a little bit like Lord of the Rings, but it's so easy to help trees with this because um, it's it's much better to let trees grow out of a seed. Then you have uh, undamaged root system. It takes time, yes, and that's I think that's the main problem we have with trees. But they live on a, a, a very different time schedule, and uh, we are too fast for them. Uh, we always want to have results, fast results, and that's why we treat trees sometimes a little bit rough. Yeah, it's almost like they're just decoration sometimes, or that's the way they're treated. Um, and one of the things that uh, we're facing at the moment in Melbourne is that a lot of our very old trees, um, are, they're being looked to be moved or relocated because of big um, infrastructure projects that the government, um, you know, wants to put in. And these trees are in the way. So, um, it, you know, we're having a discussion at the moment about whether these trees should be moved and if it will be um, bad for their health. So can I, I'm understanding from you that um, in terms, if when you do relocate a tree and the roots are um, damaged, that that would be bad. Do you think that, um, you know, relocating trees is just as damaging to trees um, in the city as, you know, planting them, like, as you say, um, you know, we're already grown as adults in Germany? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's exactly this. Um, a tree, the root system of a, a big tree. Let's say a tree which is, uh, let's say, um, um, thirty meters in height. Then you have a root system with a diameter twice as much. Uh, in this case, sixty meters, and there, it's not possible to dig out such a big root system. So you you have to damage it to to move the tree. Um, you can you know, you may say that that's. Uh, a big problem, and that's right. But the the, big, the bigger problem uh, would be to fell the tree um, if there is no other solution. And I think that's the point. Um, trees, uh, even if they suffer in cities, um, there is a good reason to to have trees in cities for the people because they can come in contact uh, with trees, they can feel uh, em empathy uh, for the trees, 
And therefore, um, yeah, for example, children uh, which are growing up in, in big cities like Melbourne or Sydney, um, yeah, if there were any trees, um, yeah, there, there, there wouldn't be any love for trees. And therefore, I think uh, trees in cities um, is like keeping animals in zoos. Now, there are good reasons to do so, but there, for the animals um, themselves, it would be better to live in the wild, and that's exactly how it is with trees. It is a good compromise to have trees in cities, but uh, there could be uh, some better things done in the future yeah, if you would give the trees a little more time to grow and uh, yeah, not, not to plant too big trees or to remove old trees if, uh, if uh, how, um, wherever it is possible, it's better to let them live where they are because their life is, even if it's uh, long for, uh, to our time scale, their life is, is uh, short enough. Absolutely. And and I've just after reading your book, I actually have trees um, near my apartment building, which is in the city. And uh, they're three really large, beautiful gum trees. Um, and it reminded me of a part in your book where you describe um, trees that are of the same species um, that grow close together tend, if they're friends, um, and if they, they're you know, friendly neighbours, they actually support each other. And when they're growing up, they don't tend to compete for space um, where the branches and the leaves are. Um, could you just share a bit more about that? Yeah. Um, trees of the same species, if, if that are trees which usually live in family bands and that are most trees of primeval forest, uh, they like to to uh, grow as close together as, as they can, and um, um, there are and sometimes there are friendships among trees, uh, closer friendships than to other trees. And then they combine their root system to a single root system. And that means, for example, when you fell one of those trees, the other one will die, like an old couple where uh, one partner deceased and the other one says, "Okay, I I don't want to live." Uh, any longer it, it doesn't make any sense so um, that's a good advice for people who have a garden uh, sometimes they are told by foresters to to give the trees more space uh, by felling neighbor trees and that's a wrong uh, wrong advice because trees of the same species like like to live together like, they like to support each other and they even can create a little a little little bit better microclimate just about the root system um and I just wanted to explore it a little bit more because you talk about it um, as being the most important part of a tree uh, and that they're somewhat the equivalent of the brain, um, you know, a human brain, but it's their equivalent of a brain. How is it brain-like? Um, because you do mention that it has a couple of things that brains do have, um, that it's got chemical messages and it also has electrical impulses. Can you explain how that works? Yeah, um, you're right that we don't know where the brain is, but there are some structures in the tree. For example, at the root tips, um, that's a research being done by the University of Bonn, there are brain-like structures and there are brain-like processes going on. And you're right on both chemical and electrical ways, like our nerve system is working. But on trees, uh, as I said, trees are very slow. So electrical signals travel as slow as, let's say, uh, half an inch per per. Um, a uh, half uh, uh, a second per half inch so um it's very very slow traveling this signal so um it's for for us even if we would be able to communicate with trees uh it wouldn't be possible because trees uh, would need hours for an answer but uh 
trees, for example, um, we know trees have a memory. We don't know where it is so far, but we know that trees can count. Um, that's the strong research being done by the University of Bochum, Bochum here in Germany. Um, they found out that, for example, apple trees will bring their new leaves um, just uh, in spring, just after a certain amount of warm days. And they count those warm days, and when a certain amount is achieved, then they bring out their new leaves to avoid a late, heavy frost. And um, that means that a tree has to have a memory because otherwise it would count every day uh, again one. <laughs> and um, we know that trees are also able to remember heavy droughts and that when they suffered from a heavy drought, then the, the wood cracks inside and that hurts the tree. Trees can feel pain. We know that. And uh, when trees suffered from such a heavy drought, it will change its water consumption, its strategy from uh, the next spring on for the rest of its life. And, and that's a new research from the University of Vancouver in uh, British Columbia. Um, they found out that old mother trees are able to pass those uh, memories to the younger generations. That is just fascinating. <laughs> so the wisdom <laughs> is passed down from generations. Yeah. And right, and uh, therefore it's it's uh, very important um, for the forest industry not to remove all all old trees, and not to make um, big clear cuts, not to remove all uh, all old trees, because otherwise, uh, when you plant new trees or when you let them grow out of seeds, they have to learn all things uh, once again, and that means that such a new forest it's is more uh, endangered because. Uh, when, when a heavy drought uh, is coming, and Australia, I know, is suffering from several heavy droughts in the last decades because of climate change, um, then a well-prepared forest is, is able to stand such a drought, and a new forest, which, which hasn't any experience with uh, such uh, climate phenomena, uh, will suffer much more or, or, or even die. Yeah, that is a really huge issue, and I think it will become more of an issue um, in the future as well. And uh, we also have a bushfire season every summer, which can be um, pretty bad. We had one um, a few years ago, which uh, was really detrimental to the trees. And I wonder if that is also similarly really um, distressing for the trees that survive. Um, and then there are these other trees that are burnt um, to the point that they die out. You mentioned in your book that um, when these other trees around, um, the trees that are living die, um, the living trees are still sending out signals to those trees that may have died? Um, yeah, they are sending signals. Um, um, uh, we don't know so far what, what a tree really is. For example, when a tree is, is burned by a fire, we are not sure if the root system is still alive. Um, and um, we don't know where the main part of a tree is. For example, when you cut a tree and out of the stump will grow a new stem. Uh, then is this a new tree or is it just the bearer of new solar cells for, for the root system? We don't know that uh, so far. And um, so far there are connections for, uh, from living trees to trees which we are uh, supposed to be dead but which are possibly uh, still alive deep in the ground because the root system is going very, very deep um, um, of some tree species and therefore... We never know that exactly, but um, there is a strong communication between trees, which is also both on chemical and electrical way, and which is also going through that wood wide web, through that fungi network, which is going all over the uh, uh, all uh, through the soil of a forest. 
Yeah, and you did mention um, that there's this way that they communicate through that wood while wood uh, wide web <laughs> and uh, that they actually tend to communicate to the point and share resources, this kind of um, sugar that they have as energy, um, so that they photosynthesize at the same rate, um, even though some of those trees would be growing in very different conditions. Yeah, right. And that that is uh, a very good um, um, discovery because I think uh, we see there a perfect social system. Uh, there's a support for the, the weak members of the forest. Uh, the strong members are um, giving sugar to, to, the, to the other trees. So uh, it's a support without condition. And that, I think that's a good, good example for how a society should work. And uh, I think it's, it's no um, incident that, that uh, our social system should work the same way because nature um, doesn't invent um, the same thing uh, twice or, or three times or much or more often. It's one system which works for every social living species. And what we're now seeing in, in Europe or all over the world with uh, the rising nationalism, uh, when, we, when we would be trees, no one would have um, the idea of doing things like that. Absolutely. There would be com healthy competition. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right. And uh, um, yeah, and, and competition between trees of the same species. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, for trees. It's uh, not not usual because um, yeah, they they want to keep the whole forest because just as a whole forest, they can stand all those things like climate change or droughts or insect attacks or whatsoever. Absolutely. And you do kind of just bring up this debate about um, animals because these trees, they sound like almost humans. And throughout the book, um, you know, you make it really relatable so that you, know, you can understand um, that their processes are very much around um, things that we relate to and that we do on a daily basis or should do more often. Um, and that there's this um, comparison now between plants and trees and also animals um, and that perhaps we should be uh, supporting them and taking care of them more um, than we do uh, and that we should be seeing them as things that have um, senses, that have feelings to some extent, um, not necessarily emotions, but that they have, that they can feel pain and that uh, potentially they can even scream in pain. Um, it's not absolutely known as you mentioned, but uh, what do you think about this distinction and, and the blurring of it? And is that a good thing? And, and should we be um, treating trees like we treat animals and presumably, hopefully, we're treating animals well? Yeah, right. That's exactly that. Um, um, to divide uh, the beings into plants and animals uh, means just that they're, they uh, gain their nutrition in different ways. Um, but plants make uh, photosynthesis and produce their own sugar and animals have to feed on, on other uh, species. And that's uh, the, the main uh, difference. Um, the, the all other things, which means feelings and strategies and um, yeah, what, what, uh, what's uh, the facilities of, of such a trees, that's, that's, um, there, there are no, no big differences. And um, the only big difference, for example, between an elephant and a tree, and a tree is like a plant elephant, is that a tree is much slower. And so we, we can't uh, realize what's, what's going on. And therefore, most people say, ah, oh, that's an oxygen producer, that's a water purifier, that's a timber uh, production which is going on there. But that uh, tree is 
uh, a um, similar wonderful being like an elephant and that is uh, living in its family bands and what's what uh, what we talked about yeah that is uh, very much uh, overlooked and yeah i my wish w uh, for the future would be that we treat plants with the same respect as animals we can use plants i'm myself eating with firewood that's nothing else than uh, tree bone of dead trees, which has been felt just before, um, for the reason to be fire in my stove. And that's okay. I just want to have the things, things in a better balance. Um, and whenever we have a choice to treat trees better, then uh, my wish would be then uh, you should do that. Yeah, I absolutely hope this does change the way we um, approach forest and forestry and conservation, but also our own gardens and our cities uh, landscaping. Um, so yeah, just it's just fascinating. Do you know why we haven't been having this discussion about trees yet, and why it's not so widely known? Um, yeah, I think it's um, we are um, yeah, uh, perhaps three decades behind the uh, discoveries of scientists. Uh, when we look at animals, it's not not long ago, perhaps twenty years ago, we treat them like uh, machinery, like bio robots and robotics. And uh, nowadays, we know okay, that's not okay to treat, for example, pigs like that because we know they have feelings. Uh, when you go fifty years back, um, human babies were uh, operated by by um, uh, doctors uh, without without any um, oh, I don't know the the English expression uh, anesthesia uh, or yeah right yeah. right yeah uh, at uh, at the open body and the the, the babies were screaming and the, the the people were saying ah that are just uh, reflex uh, that that has nothing to say nowadays we know oh that that is horrible um, and when we look at animals now we say okay. Yeah, they feel also some things and we, we shouldn't treat them like we do it in the, the big industrial keepings and industrial farming. And perhaps in, in 10 years, we look at trees in this way. And I think that's okay to, to treat all beings with respect and to, to um, think about it before using them as, yeah, as for our needs, which is uh, still okay. Um, we, we are not able to make photosynthesis. We, we, we are no plants. So we have to use other beings, but we, we, I think we should use them with a little bit more respect. Absolutely. And they are really intelligent. Um, the one thing that I found really fascinating, apart from a million things in your book, was that um, you mentioned this thing about um, the savannah in Africa and that these trees would um, give off a, a toxin um, which would put off the giraffe from actually eating their leaves. Um, and then they would send that um, ascent down the way through the wind to warn their other neighbouring um, trees. It, it really seems like they are, um, they're in their own kind of world that uh, we don't quite understand, but that they are really um, smart. Yeah, they are smart. For example, that's a very new research from the University of Leipzig um, here in Germany. They found out that trees are able to uh, um, um, decide if whether they are the branch is bitten off by a deer and they can taste the saliva of the deer and then there's a special substance uh, pumped into the branch to get rid of the deer, or um, if a human breaks off the branch. And then is, uh, there is another, another direction, because um, it doesn't make sense to, to bring toxic uh, substances into the branch, because we, we don't eat <laughs> branches. So uh, the tree 
uh, has another direction against humans and against deers. So um, trees can um, recognize what's going on. They are very slow, but uh, that doesn't mean um, that they are not, not able to register anything or make decisions or have memories, have feelings. Yeah, they are just very much slower. That's the main difference. Yeah, absolutely. And Peter, your book um, is so successful. It's been translated into many languages. And I know that uh, you've been doing multiple interviews um, because it's just had such an amazing pickup and it's really um, sparked everyone's imagination. Um, in your your work that you're doing at the moment in Germany, um, you know, you have received a lot of attention for this. Um, what have you been doing at the moment to um, expand your work and to bring it to more people? Yeah, um, I've founded that um, Forest Academy here in Himmel together with uh, two women. And now we are offering uh, seminars and, and courses to uh, people uh, which are interested in uh, forests, um, which uh, who want want to see all those things which I described in the book, or which want to who want to manage a forest better, more environmental friendly. And I think within the next two weeks we will also offer. Uh, courses or guided tours in English because I, I get requests uh, from all over the world and even if my English uh, is a little bit rough and it should be polished I hope the people um, yeah it, it's 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 going it's it's more interesting to see what we have here around and that I can show them uh, what I described in the book then uh, perhaps uh, um, listen to my explanations <laughs> It's uh, you have very excellent English, Peter. Um, so don't don't worry about that. Um, I certainly will be off to visit your tree academy or forest academy um, as soon as I can get to Germany, which is my next uh, holiday destination, I believe. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so that, I hope to see you one great. day. Yeah, and um, and it really, I think I, I did a Google search to look at some of the species you mentioned, like the beech trees, um, and they are just stunning, particularly in Germany, the primeval forests. So um, I would urge our, um, yeah, the Triple R audience to, to check that out because um, it is just a beautiful, majestic place and no wonder you're inspired by it all. Yeah, that would be, yeah, would be very glad to uh, welcome people from Australia. I know that's a long, long trip. Yeah, <laughs> but, very long uh, flight. I, it's worth it. It's worth it. And uh, yeah, we are ready to, to have groups from Australia or other English, spo English uh, spoken countries. So you're all invited to come to Germany and to look those old mother trees suckling their children. Thank you so much, Peter. It has been a fascinating conversation. We really appreciate your time um, and for sharing this secret or hidden life of trees with us. I certainly won't be able to look at another tree the same way again. Um, so yeah, thank you very much and I hope you have a lovely weekend and week. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you for being on your show. And I'm very lucky now to be speaking with Elaine Pearson, who is uh, the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch in Australia. And uh, Human Rights Watch is a global organisation. It's headquartered in New York. Um, and their report is an annual report, which has just come out, uh, this one, 2017 Human Rights Watch report. And it covers a great deal of countries and the current human rights situation um, in those countries. I think it's around 90 um, countries. And 
Well, it is very interesting to go through country by country and there's certainly a lot of things that we never hear about um, in the news. And then there's also um, some essays by those at the Human Rights Watch, including um, the Executive Director in New York, Kenneth Roth. So I'm really looking forward to hearing um, Elaine's views on the situation in Australia, but also globally. Uh, So thanks so much for joining us, Elaine. Thanks a lot, Amy. Um, So just to uh, look at Australia first, um, which, you know, it's an interesting picture. It looks like we've gone backwards, um, or at least backwards from where we think we should be, I believe. Um, you know, given that uh, the first sentence in the report for Australia says that we're a vibrant, multicultural democracy with a strong record for protecting civil and political rights, um, but serious human rights issues remain. That is um, absolutely true. And then the report goes into detail um, some of those human rights, what um, human rights issues and most particularly um, the uh, detention, offshore detention of um, asylum seekers and also um, it goes into uh, Indigenous Australians in the criminal justice system and we'd all remember that uh, Four Corners report um, which sparked the Royal Commission into detention facilities in the Northern Territory um, and more broadly. But uh, what, in terms of this outlook for Australia... um, how far have we gone backwards this year, but also, you know, in the midterm? Well, look, I think the problem in Australia is that there's been this sort of gradual chipping away at fundamental rights. Um, and that's really, you know, started with the rights of um, certain minorities. So it's easy to chip away at the rights of asylum seekers and refugees. Um, they're not citizens of Australia. They don't get the chance to vote um, in our elections. But that doesn't mean that they don't have the same uh, rights as, as other Australians. And yet over the last three or four years, since 2013, we've really seen um, an erosion um, of the rights of, of refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and then this also comes to play when it, we look at issues like counterterrorism as well. And in the last year, we've seen a couple of laws that have been passed, which we think um, really are overbroad, they're vague, and they could have, you know, in some sense, um, quite damaging um, results for the Muslim um, communities. So one of these laws is about post-sentence detention of convicted terrorists. It would essentially allow people to be detained even after they've served um, time for offences that they've committed. Um, And there's a broad selection of offences that are included there, not just acts of terrorism, acts of violence, but also causing willful damage to property, um, financing terrorism and so on. And I think when we go down this route of allowing for detention of people simply because they tried to get on a boat to Australia or allowing detention of someone because they pose a risk to the community, even after they've served their sentence. Um, I think that's a really dangerous path for Australia to be going down, especially when, you know, we do have very strong institutions, we do have a free media, um, and we do have, you know, a lot of really, you know, good things that, you know, any democracy should, should have. So I think it's quite dangerous when... I guess certain parts of the community who are vulnerable and, you know, this could be children in detention or or others um, are really left behind um, by Australia's policies um, and then vulnerable to abuse. So that was, I guess, the main sort of themes of of this year's chapter focusing on Australia um, in, in the World Report. Yeah, and obviously we do have a very strong um, legal system and uh, and 
fairly good laws around this kind of thing. But as we've seen, um, the offshore detention, um, you know, scenario has been changing legally um, in in our courts, but also uh, I think in Papua New Guinea, um, where we saw this, you know, huge, we thought potentially step forward in the fact that um, these offshore facilities were um, ruled or deemed illegal um, over there and that uh, hopefully they would be closed or shut down. Um, But as as the report outlines, uh, we still have um, at that time of writing the report more than 900 asylum seekers um, on Manus Island and about 1,200 on Nauru. So where are we um, at with this? this uh, offshore detention scenario and are is the government or are the governments waiting for this US deal um, to come to fruition or is there some other reason for the standstill? Well, look, I think um, the government's been a bit paralysed in not wanting to do anything that it deems to be politically toxic and somehow um, we've come to that level in Australia where bringing people to Australia um, is seen as politically something that um, just is not tenable. And I don't think that's true. I think when you talk to a lot of Australians today, while they may have agreed with offshore processing being set up, they didn't sign up to people being held there for three or four years in detention in horrible conditions. They didn't sign up to women being sexually abused on Nauru, um, children not having good access to adequate education, um, living in horrible conditions, some of them still living in tents. And I think a lot of Australians are really um, upset about this. But it's it's really important that um, the government actually starts to address those issues. But instead, what we've seen throughout 2016 is that there's been a succession of UN agencies and experts who have issued report after report um, condemning Australia uh, for the treatment of people on Nauru and Manus, and particularly the toll that it's taking on the mental health of the refugees who are held there. And yet Australia stubbornly refuses to, to do anything um, that it deems to be you know, politically um, unsound. And so those people remain there. And ultimately what we need is a humanitarian solution, not a political solution uh, to this problem. Um, and, you know, sadly, you know, people are continuing to languish, you know, in limbo after years in detention and they don't have long-term options. I think the US deal, which um, was announced towards the end of last year, we cautiously thought, well, maybe this will be a step forward um, for at least some of the refugees there. But there doesn't seem to have been any progress in actually getting people off um, Nauru or Manus, for that matter, um, despite the Supreme Court decision, which was, I think, back in April um, of, of last year. Um, and so the government's really dragging its feet, and it can't continue to do that. Um, you know, there are 2,000 lives at stake, um, and I think after this three-year human experiment, it's pretty clear that PNG and Nauru do not offer long-term, safe, viable um, alternatives for, for those refugees. So we need to move them somewhere else. And I think Australia really should be the first um, port of call. These people are Australia's responsibility, for better or for worse. You know, they did try to come to Australia. Uh, many of the refugees do have relatives in Australia. That's part of the reason why um, they, they tried to come here. Um, and we need to have some kind of process uh, for, for all of those people. 
Absolutely. And I mean, if we're looking at transparency, I guess that's one of the issues um, around this issue and the fact that there isn't a great deal of openness and the ability for the public and the media to scrutinise what's happening in offshore detention facilities. And uh, and clearly, with all of those reports from the UN, it's not the way um, to deal with the issue. It's not successful and it actually is doing long-term um, damage to people's health. Um, so, yeah, Hopefully we do see some change, though it is um, concerning that there's a lot of, well, there is bipartisanship on this issue um, and it's hard to know what will break the stalemate. Um, so I guess we have to be optimistic that common sense and compassion and understanding will prevail in this issue. But, um, you know, in the meantime, we need to remain vigilant and make sure that, um, you know, that people are looked after when they're in our care. Absolutely. And I mean, I think people should not just, I think there's a bit of fatigue around the asylum seeker issue in Australia and people feel like, well, it's so hopeless. What can we do? Um, And they tend to sometimes just switch off um, because they feel like the situation is so horrible and so hopeless. And I think, you know, that that's kind of the wrong approach, that people need to, you know, maintain being angry and being horrified um, at what's happening offshore um, and really do anything that they can to try and convince the government that they're not happy about the current situation. And I think we've had, you know, plenty of opportunities over the past few years with, um, unfortunately, several tragic deaths of asylum seekers on Manus and on Nauru. Um, and also, you know, various um, incidents that have occurred, the, you know, horrific um, riots that occurred in on Manus um, when, you know, local, um, local men took over the facility and, you know, several of the refugees were beaten. In one case, one person was beaten to death. Um, these incidents really matter. And I think, you know, despite the government's best efforts to try and cover up what is happening offshore in Manus and Nauru, um, we are still able to to obtain information and get that information out. And I think it's really important um, that people listen to the facts on the ground and that they recognise what is happening and they say that, you know, we don't want to actually have this happen um, in, in the name of Australia. We don't want this issue to be the issue that is synonymous with Australians, that, you know, being Australian is somehow synonymous with being cruel to, to refugees. Certainly. And I mean, you know, I think we had a a fairly good um, reputation a decade ago, maybe, um, you know, as a as a kind of a middle power that um, brokered different uh, resolutions and agreements and also was a good uh, international citizen, um, as good as possible. Um, And certainly we have deteriorated in our reputation overseas. And um, looking at that global and overseas context of human rights and and where we're fitting within that, um, you know, one of the key trends uh, that uh, has been drawn out in this report is this um, rise of populism and you know, large-scale attacks on human rights in, you know, a range of countries, not um, just places where there are civil wars such as Syria, which is, you know, dire and, um, you know, that is a, a really, really serious situation, but also in America um, where there's been, um, you know, many of the, the policies floated by Don- Donald Trump um, in his election campaign were um, potentially, uh, you know, undermining the human rights of various groups 
groups um, within American society and uh, we're not sure what will happen, um, whether those policies will be implemented. But Elaine, could you please share with us um, what the kind of concerns are from Human Rights Watch perspective on this global scale? Yeah, I mean, this was a theme throughout the World Report. So we have sort of these overarching essays. And in the essay by Ken Roth, I think the the biggest threat um, that to human rights at the moment is certainly the rise of a new generation of authoritarian populist leaders, um, both in Europe, um, also with the election of Trump in the United States, but also closer to home in places like the Philippines with uh, President Duterte. And I guess what these leaders have in common is an open contempt for human rights and the human rights system. And that's why it's a really dangerous um, threat to basic human rights protections, that you have leaders who are saying it's okay to commit extrajudicial killings because they're just drug users and, um, you know, drug traffickers, or it's okay to commit acts of torture because, you know, these are, you know, supposedly Muslim terrorists. And I think that's, you know, an extremely dangerous path for the world to go down, Um, and particularly for the United States. I mean, the United States, for better or for worse, you know, has had a quite inconsistent um, policy on human rights, but at the same time in international forums like the United Nations has, you know, often outwardly professed um, support uh, for human rights at the centre of its foreign policy. And I think if that goes with Trump, which it certainly looks like it will go, if you look at, um, you know, who he has appointed to to be his Secretary um, of State, um, then I think it's actually going to give a bit of a green light to authoritarian leaders um, to commit human rights abuses uh, because there won't be these sorts of, you know, powers that will speak up uh, when those rights of minorities are repressed. And I guess we're also seeing... Some of those trends, certainly not to the same degree, but also reflected in Australia. So obviously we had an election last year. We saw the return of uh, One Nation, um, which in a similar way to some of these other populist leaders have really sought to scapegoat uh, foreigners, minorities, um, you know, certain communities as, you know, the cause of certain problems without... And, it, you know, it's easy to do that, but basically this is appealing to um, to populism, this is appealing to people's fears, um, and often the solutions that are uh, um, proffered by One Nation and by Trump and others are really oversimplistic solutions. So they might, you know, sound nice, they might be good at grabbing a headline, but in reality they're actually not going to fix the complex problems that society is facing. And clearly in 2016, if you look around the world with what's happening in Syria, with what's happening in Africa and, and all around the world, um, you know, it's, it's quite a turbulent um, place. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of instability all around the world. Um, so it's not surprising that some people um, are hoping that someone will come in and fix things and they don't want things to be business as usual. Um, but we just want to make sure that the, the leaders who are elected um, don't forget about uh, basic human rights standards and ultimately, you know, I think, you know, we have to remember the reason why we have all these human rights treaties and conventions is because we saw what happened when there aren't those kinds of limits uh, placed on governments. We saw that happen with World War II, with all of the atrocities that were committed um, in Europe and in other parts of the world. And that's why it's really important that we have um, and that we maintain uh, support for basic human rights protections. 
Absolutely. And in terms of, um, you mentioned there, Syria and Africa being those um, some places with a great deal of instability um, and, you know, human rights issues. Um, Could you share with us some of those issues or some of the key concerns that um, even one that's outlined in the report? Because I feel that um, Syria gets a little bit of media and and certainly it should get a lot more in terms of, um, you know, Australia's focus on overseas um, issues, but also Africa. And it really doesn't seem like we get to hear what is happening over there. Is there um, any news you can share on that front? Sure. I mean, I think in Syria, while governments are very concerned about the rise of ISIS and what that means, um, in reality, ISIS is obviously committing horrible crimes against humanity and war crimes. Um, But if you look at the number of victims of abuses, in fact, the far biggest abuser is actually President uh, Bashar al-Assad and those... um, his military backed by Russia, Iran and Hezbollah, which has had a war strategy which has really involved um, what can only be described as war crimes, um, acts like targeting civilians in opposition areas, the use of barrel bombs in, in heavily crowded civilian areas, which have resulted um, in you know massive civilian casualties. So this has flouted the most basic requirements of the laws of war. And while ISIS is a problem, um, we also have, you know, have other problems in, in Syria. And I think these have been dis- on display. If you remember the footage that was coming out of Aleppo recently over, over the Christmas period um, of people who, who are really suffering there and have been suffering for the past years, um, but, you know, very little has been done to, to address their plight. And much of the focus with Syria has really been on refugees. Um, with Africa, I mean, I think we've, what we've seen, you know, particularly over the last year or so is a number of leaders um, have really tried to remove or extend term limits. Um, they've tried to stay in office. Others have used violent crackdowns in places like Burundi um, to suppress protests over unfair elections. Um, and we've also seen over the last year or so several African leaders who feel, I guess, vulnerable to prosecution harshly criticising the International Criminal Court um, and a few countries have announced their withdrawal. So I think those are sort of some of the issues um, that we're facing in Africa. In Africa, I guess the issues around the International Criminal Court um, have been because that court um, has been quite significant in bringing justice and in holding abusive leaders to account. So we you know, have seen, for instance, um, the former leader of Chad who was um, sentenced by that court last year and I think, you know, several African leaders are certainly starting to feel worried because the International Criminal Court is, is doing its job in holding um, abusive leaders to account. And that is actually something, um, at least, that is good to hear to come out of that process. And I know that the International Criminal Court process does, does take a while, but um, it does sound like with those who are members, it's certainly um, doing doing a pretty good job. So thank you, um, Elaine, for sharing that uh, with us. There's just so much to cover. And I really encourage everyone to take a look through um, the report online. It's interactive and uh, you can look through the PDF, but you can also look at it through a drop down and actually browse through the countries um, to find out more. So please do check that out. Um, thanks so much, Elaine, for joining us. Thanks a lot, Amy. Good to talk to you. 
And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.